Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open it to John chapter 19 on this Good Friday. It's a little awkward uh, as you celebrate Good Friday, knowing what a celebration Easter is. Such a beautiful time of remembering the resurrection of Christ, the life that's found by faith in Him, how God can bring about life out of death, and we'll be talking about that tomorrow uh, in this weekend. And if you only celebrate Easter, then you, you really miss the significance in many ways of the death of Christ and what he's done for us. The resurrection is glorious, but what necessitated the resurrection was a great and painful day. And I'm sure that you can remember a time in your life of great pain I mean, of course, a lot of us are walking wounded. We got some physical ailment, uh, broken arm, broken leg. I was talking to a sister. We got these long-term uh, injuries that are going to stay with us until we get our new bodies. Anybody have a long-term injury? Yeah, just aches and pains. Now you're walking down the stairs and every noise in the world, you're wondering who's in the house, but it's actually your knees. <laughs> All kinds of pain. There's pain physically. There's the pain of rejection. The pain of grief, betrayal, abandonment, divorce. I guess you could say that Good Friday as we know it would be known as God's most painful day. A day of great excruciating pain, so much so they invented a word to describe the kind of pain that Jesus experienced on the cross. We saw in John 19 that it started with uh, scourging uh, in verse 1. It says, Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. I want you to think of scourging in its, the depth of what it is. It's a painful beating, and he endures this all the way through. It's described by historians uh, this way. The usual instrument was with a short whip, several single braided leather thongs with variable links in which small iron balls or sharp pieces of sheep bone were tied at various intervals. And the man being scourged was stripped of his clothing. His hands were tied to an upright post where his back and his buttocks and his legs were flogged. The death or the scourging was intended to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse or death. And as the Roman soldiers repeatedly stuck, struck the victims back with full force, each taking turns, the iron balls would cause deep contusions, the leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and into the subcutaneous tissues. And then as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles. Often there were two scourgers, one on either side of the victim, who took turns. Muscles were lacerated, veins and arteries were torn open. It was not uncommon for the kidneys, the spleen, or other organs to be exposed and slashed. When you think of scourging, scourging, or many years I pronounced it scourging, but the, the real pronunciation is scourging. 
When you think of that, I want you to think of the significance of what Jesus endured. And this was just the beginning. You know, the idea of scourging was to elicit a a confession, whether they were guilty or not, so that they could deal with the guy right then and there. And yet Jesus endures this to the end and then would take up and pick up his cross and carry it with its load on his beat-up body. That's where we come to the verse 17 of, of John where it talks about Jesus bearing his cross and he went out to a place called the place of the skull or in Hebrew, Golgotha, and there they crucified him with two others with him, one on either side, Jesus in the center. You know, those reading this in the first century would totally understand what crucifixion was. Crucifixion was actually invented by the Persians. They believed that the earth was sacred, so they created a way to kill a criminal, lift it up off of the earth, so that their death wouldn't defile the earth. And it was Klausner, the Jewish writer, that said, crucifixion is the most terrible and cruel death which man has ever devised for taking vengeance on his fellow man. Cicero called it the most cruel and most horrible torture. And Tacitus called it a torture that's only fit for slaves. So even though the Persians invented it, the Romans perfected it. And historically, the Romans used it more than any other uh, country, nation, people group uh, in all of history. Some estimate that they killed some 30,000 Jews by crucifixion under their reign. And it was intended not only to deal with crime or false accusations of crime, but it was also intended to send a message, and that was don't mess with Rome, whatever you do. Rome kept it exclusively for rebels, runaway slaves, and the lowest type of criminal. Crucifixion was such a cruel way to die that they didn't use it on their citizens. So when you think of Jesus after the scourging, open wounds, and remember the Bible tells us as he hung on the cross that he was unrecognizable. I think the old King James describes it as his visage was marred. That unless you knew who he was, you would think just another man, an unrecognizable man. Crucifixion would have involved laying Jesus on his open, lacerated, bleeding back on a huge, rough, splintery cross. The Roman soldiers would then take spikes five to seven inches long and hammer them between the two arm bones at the wrist, which would then crush the medial nerve. The pain was absolutely unbearable. In fact, it was literally beyond words to describe that they invented a new word. They called that pain excruciating, and the word excruciating literally means out of or from the cross. They had to create a new word because there was no word in existence in the language of the day that could describe the intense anguish caused during crucifixion. And it was at this point that Jesus was hoisted as the crossbar was attached to the vertical stake and then nails were driven through Jesus' feet. Again, the nerves of the feet would have been crushed. Crushed and severed nerves were certainly bad enough, but his arms would have then immediately been stretched out, probably up to six inches in length. And both shoulders would have been immediately dislocated. 
And this fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy that we read in Psalm 22, which foretold the crucifixion hundreds of years before it took place. My joint, my bones are out of joint. And the, the methodology of death from the cross was asphyxiation or cardiac arrest. It was the most torturous, painful way for a person to die. And that is what happened on Friday in a very brief description. You add to that, you know, let's say that we're the observers here, you add to that the abandonment of Jesus where those that stood so strongly and confidently a few days earlier saying, we'll never leave you, never leave you, never leave you, when it was really time, they all scattered. But it was necessary that Jesus go to the cross. It was necessary that Jesus be scourged. It was his perfect sinless offering that provides a way of escape for you and for me. The Bible actually puts it this way. When you start to begin to understand how God puts the reality of the day with the spiritual reality, the Bible puts it this way. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the great exchange. Jesus suffered in silence throughout all the hours of interrogation, all the hours of torture, all the hours of his agony. The Bible says in Isaiah 53 that Jesus was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And yet when the weight of humanity's sins were poured out upon him, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the word forsaken means, well, why have you deserted me? Why have you abandoned me or rejected me? And these words are shocking coming from the Son of God, <clears throat> coming from his humanity, they disarm us. They cause us to wonder, what did he mean? What was the point? I think it's hard for us. It certainly is hard for me to fathom what was taking place here. You know, it's like holy ground as we try to place ourselves You know, for most of us in this day and age, we walked into a church like this, we heard the gospel, we responded to the hope that our sins can be forgiven, we left the building, left the place, walking by faith. Many of you were born into a Christian family, so you have to go through a few generations for someone in your family to walk into a church, but you were just born into uh, Christianity, you were born, uh, even coming to a place where you made the decision for yourself, and, and, and we, we don't fully grasp I think it's part of the sanctification process of God giving us the mind of Christ. We don't fully grasp the kind of pain that Jesus experienced for us. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Unfortunately, in our day and age, Jesus has been relegated to some wish maker, you know, someone that can just give you everything that you want and make sure that you have a happy life and make sure that things are... But, but that's not the Jesus of the Bible at all. It's not the Jesus who died for your sins. He's more interested in developing you and your character, strengthening you in the weaknesses, teaching you through the difficulties, allowing you to share. Paul would even talk about in his own life that he was sharing in the sufferings of Christ so that you might be more usable 
and have a story, a true story to tell for those that are in your life. The, the impact of our lives, of what happened on Good Friday is so significant that literally without Good Friday, you have no spiritual life. Without the blood of Jesus Christ, there is no forgiveness of sins. To imagine that there'll be still folks in and out on this weekend, today, uh, other churches with Good Friday services and the, all the Easter services and all the sunrise services and all of the stadium services around the country, around the world, there will still be people at the end of the day who leave, who ignore, who avoid, maybe go to one of those services and leave it, still unforgiven. And all of this true history with Jesus did happen, whether you believe it or not. There were eyewitnesses to this. The men and women that watched this, they saw it with their own eyes, testified to it with their own mouths. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are not the delusions of a man in pain. His faith was not failing him. I believe as Christ was hanging there at this moment, he was bearing the sins of the world, yours and mine. He was dying as a substitute for us. I guess we step down a moment and personalize it. He was bearing your sin at this moment. Your sin. The weight of your separation from God. We often even will misunderstand sin and identify it as a few little actions and a few little bad things that we do. But the reality and root of sin is separation from a holy and a righteous God. You, you could think of it even in the little acts and things, you can think of sin as, as wholesale, complete rebellion against God. Good Friday dealt a death blow to our rebellion and made a way of escape for us. Messiah hanging on a cross, fulfilling the promises of God, the Lamb of God, not a Lamb of God, but the Lamb of God, that takes away the sins of the world. To him was imputed all the guilt of all our sins. And he suffered the necessary punishment for those sins on my behalf and on yours. And the essence of that punishment and the outpouring of God's wrath against sinners was taken by Jesus. And in some mysterious way that we can never fully understand, during these awful hours on the cross, the Father was pouring out the full measure of his wrath against sin, and the recipient of that wrath was God's own beloved son. Listen, God was punishing Jesus as if he had personally committed every wicked deed committed by every wicked sinner. And in doing so, he could treat and forgive those redeemed ones as if they had lived Christ's perfect life of righteousness. And we know this event happened. We have eyewitness accounts of it. And today, as you head out on a more solemn note, and the weight of sin is ever upon us, because I mean, it's not that we've just been forgiven and delivered of our sin, but there's a lingering part of sin that's still with us. There is a battle for every believer, the Bible describes, between the spirit and the flesh. 
James would, or excuse me, later on, John would write in 1 John, he would talk to the believers then. John, you know, he was about 90 years old, 90 years old by the time he wrote 1 John. So he comes as that grandfatherly man of wisdom who would often put his head on the breast of Jesus and he was that close and he would say, hey, if we say we have no sin, we're liars. And so while we have celebrations and excitement and we know Sunday's coming we know a lot can change in three days you know that a lot can change it could be that God is once again drawing your attention to the changes that are still yet to be made in you you're living this separated life even as a born-again believer sin just wrecks everything it wrecks friendships it wrecks families, it wrecks churches, it wrecks man. And every man and woman that wants to mess around with sin is going to get wrecked in some form or fashion. So John records for us, as you fast forward in John 19, he records for us in verse 30. It says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said... It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. With these words, the declaration of victory over Satan has been said. It is finished. What is finished? Well, we can apply that to quite a few things. First of all, Jesus' sufferings were finished. In less than a 24-hour period, he had been mutilated beaten, spat upon, shamed, abandoned by his disciples, forsaken by his father, it's finished. And we're reminded that there's a day in your life where it'll be finished. (laughs) Oh, not the work of salvation, but your sufferings, they'll be done. Your longings will be done. Your desires for something better, for the eternal realm, it'll all be done because you'll be translated from this life to the next. Why? Because of the finished work of Jesus upon the cross. Another thing that was finished, I believe, is that the law's requirements of righteousness. It's finished. No one but Jesus was capable of keeping the law, but Jesus kept it perfectly. And what the law could not do, Jesus did, the Bible says, and he met the requirements of the law all the way to the end. And then the final thing I think that Jesus is saying here when it's finished is that our redemption is finished. Jesus' death on the cross was once and for all the sacrifice necessary to rescue you and me from the pain and penalty of sin. The Bible would put it this way, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. And then in verse 38 of John 19, It says, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. And so he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. And then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen, with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. And in that place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb 
in which no one had yet been laid. And so they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. I always like to remind us as a church that those experiencing what we're reading in the Bible don't know how it's going to end as we're reading it. They don't know. So it leaves them off here with Jesus being laid in the tomb and it's just over. We got to go on with life. They don't know. Now, they, there is a piece where they should know because Jesus prepped them for this constantly, always reminding them that the crucifixion would not be the end. But you know how it is. When you hear bad news, you kind of stop at bad news. You, you, you absorb it and you have a tendency, we have a tendency to hear the bad news and not go on to the good news. So they, they, they don't know yet. And we don't have to even use our imagination to what some were feeling. You can come with me to Luke chapter 24. We know a little bit of what the emotion of the day was. We know from the people that were closest to him what, how they responded and what they did. In, in Luke uh, 24, it's a page, couple pages to your left, in verse 13, we're introduced to these two men on the road heading out to Emmaus. They're leaving Jerusalem and they're heading back home. And it says in verse 13, behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So you could say that their discussion was a lot of what we just spoke about in the last 20 minutes or so and everything preceding that. You can think about how they heard about Jesus, what they thought about him, life decisions they were making about, what the future might hold, the deliverance of Israel, the Messiah has come, finally God's promises after thousands of years. They were talking about these things, specifically leading up to the death and crucifixion and death of Jesus. It says in verse 15, while they conversed and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, it says in verse 16. They didn't know him. And he said, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? And then one whose name was Cleopas answered and said, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? <laughs> have you not known the things which happen there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, these things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet, mighty in word and deed, chief priests, and delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. We were hoping that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. You know, when they cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, it was a cry of, save us. It's been the heart cry of every human being on the planet earth, but for the Jew especially, save us. And they hoped that he was the one. But now it's the third day, they say in verse 21, since these things had happened. And certain women came, arrived at the tomb, astonished us. They didn't find his body. They came saying they also had seen a vision of angels who was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but they did not see. And this is all the emotion in just the few days after the death and crucifixion of Jesus and after the resurrection. Here they are. They're sad. We see in verse 25, Jesus is gently talking. They're, they're talking foolishness. They're going home not by faith. They're slow of heart to believe. 
and everything that was predicted. And shouldn't the Christ, verse 26, suffered these things and entered into his glory? And then he gives them a Bible study beginning at Genesis 1-1, all throughout the scriptures, pointing out where Messiah was and the fulfillment of it all. So it was a tough few days after the crucifixion. You know how you take the initial shock of things, but then things don't get better, they get worse. That's where those that were following Christ were. And that's how we leave. Even though we know the end of the story, we leave with the consideration of the weight of our brothers and sisters that experienced this firsthand years before. And how can we not think about our brothers and sisters around the world today under great duress with all the changes happening in our global culture today, we still have a tremendous amount of freedom to worship, but most of the world has no freedom to worship openly, and they suffer greatly for their faith. And so today, as you consider Good Friday, and you leave on a more somber note, let, let it sink in. Let, let the reality of what Jesus Christ has done for you, let it sink in. Not allow, just even ask God. You know, it's, Ed, it's this, the, the, another Good Friday service, another repetition of the facts of the day. But Lord, I want them to have significant meaning. I want them to have life change. I want you to add to me. I want you to subtract to me so I can be more usable for you in these last days. These are the facts are the facts. And the final fact that I think is important for you to realize and maybe watching online right now is simply this. If you die in your sin, you will spend eternity apart from God. All that Jesus went through was not some happy church service, you know, fodder for a happy church service or a Bible study. What Jesus went through was to forgive you and rescue you from a Christless eternity. Hosanna, Hosanna, yeah, he is the one that saves. He is the one that rescues, and he is the one that redeems. And it would, we would be remiss, I would be remiss as a pastor if I didn't invite you to turn away and repent of your sins and follow him today so that you would come clean before God so that you can be cleaned and cleansed from your sin. You don't need to experience the wrath of God but it's a strange thing, and we could go on all day, but i got to let you go in a moment. But it's a strange thing in the Bible where it talks about those apart from Christ are actually living right now with the wrath of God upon them. That's why you need the great exchange. You may not feel it, you may not experience it, but your spiritual condition before God is you, you're living under the judgment of God every day. Just like Adam and Eve, Remember? Adam and Eve, they were told, in the day that you eat it, you'll die. And they ate of the forbidden fruit, and they died in that moment. But they kept living. How is that possible? Well, spiritually, they were immediately disconnected from God. While at the same time, they were breathing, walking, thinking. They were alive physically, but spiritually dead. And it is God's will for your life. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is God's will for your life. And so, Father, I pray and I ask, as we consider these things today, the weight of the words are not even significant to carry the weight 
that you experienced on our behalf. And I pray for those that, and ask you, God, to draw those that are in desperate need of you to yourself today. Young, old, and everyone in between. That today would be the day of salvation, life change, forgiveness of sins. And for us that have been in relationship with you, we, it, it is, it is a, a tremendous thing to consider that even while I was still dead in my trespasses and sin, Christ died for the ungodly. And so we publicly thank you today. And we leave here with some sort of imagination of how heavy it was, Lord, and how great, how great of a savior you are, what a great friend you are, what a great servant you are, and how even those guys that were kicking cans on their way home, you met them, you encouraged them, you re-enlisted them, you reinvigorated them, and I pray that into our lives today, in Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.